Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a geriatrician discusses a new experimental treatment that may have an impact on Alzheimer's disease. Previously, we've been able to offer medications that only took care of the symptoms. So we're excited with the T2 study, for example, that this may actually change the disease process. And that gives us a lot of hope. An emergency management expert tells how to make sure you and your family are prepared for any emergency. And a lung expert talks about the mysterious and deadly pulmonary illnesses that have been tied to vaping. The kids think the flavored products are safer than the tobacco flavored ones. They do not understand that they are at risk of severe nicotine addiction. All that, plus a selection from the Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn how to make sure we're prepared for any emergency. Then we'll discuss the mysterious vaping illness that has killed some and hospitalized hundreds. But first, we'll explore the promise of a treatment that could have an impact on the progression of Alzheimer's disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The number of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease is expected to triple to more than 15 million by the year 2050. There's no cure, and the current treatments have limited benefit. Now there's a new experimental treatment being offered at 40 academic medical centers and specialized clinics throughout the United States, including here at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this clinical trial is Dr. Sharon Brayman. She's a SUNY Distinguished Service Professor of Medicine, and she's Chief of the Department of Geriatrics. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brayman. Thank you. So tell us about trorilazole. So we call it T2, and it's a clinical trial that we're very excited about because it's a different kind of medication. It may be a medication that actually protects the brain, It's called a neuroprotective agent, and unlike the other medications that are currently available that just treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, this drug has the potential to actually change the disease process. So that's very exciting for us. So how does it work in the brain? What is it? Does it work in the brain? So it works in the brain, and there are channels in the brain that help transmit certain chemicals called neurotransmitters that help our brain send messages and signals and make memories and other things. And this drug works on a certain chemical, glutamate. And if you have too much glutamate, that is not healthy for the brain. You need the right amount. Uh, Sometimes I like to give an analogy about static on the radio. If you have a lot of background noise and static coming in, you can't hear the music or the talking. But if you reduce the amount of static, that music can come through. So we're looking at medications that may reduce that overabundance of this brain chemical so that the good signals can come through, which may actually help protect the brain and save it from breaking down. Will it affect um, the symptoms of Alzheimer's? Does it, will it have like an impact on the ability to remember So that's part of our study right now, is to see how this drug helps the brain. Uh, We are looking specifically for its use in people who already have Alzheimer's disease, mild to moderate, where we know their brain is already having trouble keeping information straight. So what we want to do with this trial is break people up into groups. Some people will get the actual experimental medicine. Other people will get a placebo or a sugar pill. And then we're going to follow them over time and see if the people who are getting the experimental drug have more retention of brain function and better memory and other things that we'll be looking at. I've heard that trorilazole or T2 um, is used or has been used for general anxiety. 
Do, do you know how it was seen to maybe have an impact in Alzheimer's? So the, we're, we're still understanding the brain, and the brain makes a lot of different chemicals and neurotransmitters that have multiple purposes in the brain. And so we know that even though we have one diagnosis that comes up, there may be other things that are going on underneath. So for example, when I'm taking care of someone with Alzheimer's disease, they may have anxiety, they may have depression, they can have agitation, and a lot of this is based on some of those brain chemicals. All right, well, let's talk about how this study is set up. Um, how many people do you need? So we would like to get as many people as we can. Um, we are part of a group of multiple centers across the country, and so we're trying to offer it to everyone who we think is eligible. There are strict criteria that you have to go through to make sure you can be enrolled in the study, and so it may take us going through several people to get one that will actually fit and be appropriate to move on. So that's why we're trying to get the word out to as many people as possible so that we can find out who is eligible. So the ages you're looking at, 50 to 85? So we're looking for people between the ages of 50 and 85 with a diagnosed mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. So they have to have had the diagnosis. They don't just suspect that maybe they're getting to that point, but they, they need to have the diagnosis. So ideally they would have the diagnosis and it usually is mild to moderate. And that's something else we're excited about because most of the studies haven't been looking at people who are moderate. They wanted people before they had the actual memory problem or had it in a very mild form. And so we need to understand even in moderate people because we take care of those patients too, how this drug may be helpful. So the ages of 50 to 85, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, they can be on Alzheimer's medications, but they have to be on a stable dose for at least three months. So that means the dose hasn't been adjusted recently. Okay. Can they be um, in a nursing home? No, they have to be uh, living at home and they have to have a caregiver or a study buddy, somebody who can help bring them in and can help participate in the study. How, how much of a commitment is this? How long does the study last? So it's about a year, and it would require the person, if they're eligible, to come into our center about nine times. Nine individual trips. Nine trips okay. in. We have a, a protocol or a list of criteria that we have to follow very closely in order to participate in this program. Uh, you start off with a brain scan, an MRI of the brain, and it ends with an MRI of the brain. And then there's a series of of brain tests, cognitive testing, memory testing, and other things that are done along the way. Is there any cost to participate? There is no cost to the individual, and we will pay your parking if needed. Uh, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to participate. Now, the screening for applicants includes um, some memory and thinking tests, a physical exam, and an EKG. Um, what are the things that you're looking for that would disqualify a person? So you have to have a score that would fall between the mild and moderate range. So if you score too high, meaning you're very, very early in the disease process, you wouldn't be eligible. And also if you score into a, a range that might make you more advanced, you wouldn't be eligible. We have to make sure the person is basically healthy and doesn't have any other medical problems that could impact their participation in the study or the chances of using this drug. That being said, this drug has a very low side effect profile and it's very well tolerated in most people. So we don't anticipate uh, people having significant problems related to this medication, but that's also part of what we will monitor while they're in this study. Now, if a person's accepted into the study, do they get to choose whether they get the uh, real drug or the sugar pill? No, nobody will know. We won't know, and the patient won't know. So they will be given pills to take at home, and uh, we will not know what they are. It's called a double-blind study, which means the patient as well as the people in the study won't know if it's the real pill or the sugar pill, and that will keep us from being biased in collecting information so that we can be sure that any effects that occur are due to the drug or not to the drug. 
how how will you know whether it's working then as you go along or how would the patient suspect whether it's working so you will not be able to tell if it's working there are visits that will be required in the center where we will take more information and all of this information gets sent to a central uh, location where all of the information is analyzed across all 40 sites and so it's not so much one single person although every single person is important it's more important to look at what is happening with the group because we want to see if there's an impact on the whole group because we're not looking for one individual person in order to figure out if this is successful or not. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's a SUNY Distinguished Service Professor of Medicine, and she's chief of the Department of Geriatrics. We're talking about a national trial that evaluates a drug um, to see whether it has an impact on Alzheimer's disease. And I want to let listeners know they can call this phone number at Upstate if they want more information. It's 315-464-3285. And they can also go online to the website T, the number two, protect.org, and that will uh, provide information on multiple sites across the country where this trial is being done, not just here in Syracuse. But certainly here at Upstate, you will draw people from throughout um, Central New York who might be interested, right? So here at Upstate, we have the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease, which is one of nine across the state. And the one here in central New York covers a 15-county area going up to St. Lawrence County and down to Broome County. We go up to Lewis County in the Adirondacks. And so we are part of a consortium across New York State to help identify patients with Alzheimer's disease, help other physicians who are taking care of these patients, to teach it to the next generation of healthcare professionals, and also to participate in trials like this so that we can help advance treatment and understanding of the disease. So you mentioned how many people are affected by Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. We have to still take care of those people, and we want to make sure that we're giving them the care that shows the best chances of success. And that's why we are participating in these clinical trials. So the T2 trial is one, but are there others um, that you have underway? Yes. So we have other trials that we are working on. Uh, We also have the graduate trial, which targets one of the abnormal proteins that can build up in the brain to see if removing that protein can be helpful in um, the disease course. We are about to launch another trial called the MIND study, and that is... That stands for memory improvement with uh, nicotine dosing. Hmm. And so what we want to do is look at how well someone's memory is if they use a nicotine patch. And people get very nervous when they hear nicotine because they associate it with cigarettes. But this is not anything related to cigarettes. When you smoke a cigarette, you're getting a lot of tars and other chemicals. This is pure nicotine that would be used in a patch form, which is safe. And we know that there are receptors or brain cells that are sensitive to nicotine, and that when those receptors are blocked and they can't get nicotine, they start to age and die. And on the other hand, when they're stimulated with nicotine, they have improvement in memory that may last even after you stop taking the nicotine. So this is another Um, study that we're very excited to look at because it may, again, help down the road in terms of protection. So what we want to do here is be able to offer a variety of clinical trials that um, we can help our subjects review and see which ones they would like to participate in. And prior to that, we had very limited access to clinical trials in our area, and many times families had to go to a big city like Boston or New York, which is very hard to do um, if you already have a problem with your memory. And so we want to reduce that stress and make things available here right in our community. Well, it's got to be with a disease like Alzheimer's where we're still trying to figure out what will help. Um, The the promise of being, you know, able to participate in a clinical trial, I mean, it might feel like to some people that there's no other options. 
So we have patients who say, what can I do to help so that my grandchildren don't have to deal with this disease? And so we've always had patients who wanted to participate in new discoveries and new science to help their grandchildren not get this disease. And we were limited in our ability to offer them anything until now with this uh, new focus on our clinical trial center. So we're very excited that we can be part of the new science moving forward and really see if we can change the course of this disease. So previously, we've been able to offer medications that only took care of the symptoms and didn't really change the underlying disease process. So we're excited with the T2 study, for example, that this may actually change the disease process, and that gives us a lot of hope. So the person with Alzheimer's, um, do they, they need to give consent to participate, but if they're not of mind to do that, can a, can a caregiver or a spouse or loved one give consent for them? Yes, so we work very carefully to make sure that we are doing things in a, in a proper manner. So we never want to enroll anyone in a study against their will or enroll anyone in a study who doesn't have the ability to give permission. So what we do is evaluate that person's ability to give permission, and if they can't, we talk to their, their health care proxy or the person who's responsible for their health care, and then we work with them. But if a person, no matter what, says they don't want to participate, we don't force them to do it. So this is not our goal. Our goal is to enroll people who want to help find new answers and this doesn't change our relationship with our patients. If they decide they don't want to participate, we still take care of them. So we're not doing that kind of either-or situation. We just want to have the option of offering this, and if someone doesn't want to participate, we, don't, we understand. Okay. Well, I'll say the phone number again. Uh, it's 315-464-3285 for anyone who's interested in learning more. Thank you very much for your time. My guest has been Dr. Sharon Brangman, a SUNY Distinguished Service Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Department of Geriatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about emergency preparedness for your family. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. It's important to be prepared year-round, but many Central New Yorkers step it up as the weather starts to change. We want to be ready for any sort of winter storm. Here to help us make sure we're not forgetting anything is Bradley Marmon. He's the Emergency Management Coordinator at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, National Preparedness Month every September is an effort to get everyone thinking about whether they're prepared for natural disaster, weather emergency, basically anything that could disrupt everyday life. And this year's theme was prepared, not scared. So do you want to start with talking about sort of the money side of things and how to prepare like financially? Right. So when, when families start thinking about disasters, it's, it's extremely important to start thinking about their finances and the recovery aspect of disasters. Um, there are a lot of things you can do beforehand to, to set yourself up for success. One of those things is checking your insurance coverage. So typically, um, everyone has homeowners or renters insurance based on their situation. But uh, typically, homeowners and renters insurance isn't going to cover, say, uh, flood damage, right? So it's very important uh, that you, you can make a call to your insurance company to understand what your insurance company covers. And just ask them, am I covered for floods? Yes, you can absolutely ask that question. Or earthquakes. Right. Any sort of disaster, any sort of damage uh, that's going to take place from a, from a natural disaster or a man-made disaster. And it's, it's important to note that typically with these insurance policies, flood specifically, it can take up to 30 days before that insurance takes effect. So this is why we want to prepare and we want to do these things ahead of time 
So not, we're not, not trying when to, it starts we're, raining. But. Right. We're not trying to make these decisions when it's already raining. That's going to be a little bit too late. So okay. um, again, and, and this is something you can almost put something like this um, into budgeting that you already have, you know, start planning um, using your monthly budgets. That's that's already existent. One other thing I like to say with this as well is uh, taking photos of important documents such as your driver's license, your birth certificate, um, social security cards. This can be extremely important if you lose those things in a disaster. You will need to have those things available for uh, insurance claims. They will want to see those identifiers. And it's also a good idea to take pictures of your home but as it stands now. Very okay. important to have recent photos so that claim can be filed effectively. In interior and exterior. Interior and exterior. And typically, if you have a basement, make sure you take a picture of that basement as well. Because if we do have floodwaters coming in, that's going to be the area that's affected. Where, sure. Yes. Now, what about in terms of planning for um, disaster? Do you need to have cash on hand? Yes. It's very important to have cash on hand. And actually, the Federal Reserve uh, anticipates that um, 40% of Americans don't even have around $400 in savings, which is extremely problematic when you start thinking about what if ATMs are down? What if credit card machines are not working? So cash would be an extremely important asset to have on hand to be able to buy things to get you through the following days of a disaster. And these days, I mean, we're such a cashless society um, when things are working, um, but if suddenly none of that was available. Right. We're extremely dependent. Even on our phones now, we have apps that can transfer money um, in, in certain resources like that, which are great for the society we live in right now, pre-disaster. But post-disaster, I think it's important to understand, you know, we may need to have cash available. And this is something as simple as taking a couple hundred dollars, whatever you can afford, and maybe just putting it in a plastic bag in a safe somewhere or your go bag that, that you're going to assemble for your family. Okay, and we're going to talk about go bags, but um, before we get to that, let me ask you about sort of the individual community where people live. Are there things that you recommend people do now um, to just sort of learn about the community's preparedness? Right. Well, I think it's important to understand, first of all, the community you live in and disasters that affect your community. So disasters affect almost everyone in this country and around the world. Whether you're in the Northeast, we can see snowstorms, windstorms, wildfires. Uh, we can even see hurricanes like we saw in Sandy in 2012. And if we're down south, we're thinking more about hurricanes. Um, so disasters affect everyone. So it's really important to understand where you are. So if we're living in the central New York region, we want to understand, do we live by a river that is in the floodplain? So the first part of that, understanding what uh, is the hazard for your community. And then the second part of that is getting involved in community preparedness. There's plenty of ways to do that. You can do something as simple as taking a CPR AED class. That's a very easy thing to do. Those are easily, um, you can find those right on the internet where you can sign up for those. Um, the other thing you can do is take a look at volunteer organizations that are active in disaster in your community. There's plenty around in every community, whether they're setting up shelters, handing out food to those who maybe are displaced by the disaster. With that typically comes a lot of training, free training if you get involved in those groups. So not only are you taking the opportunity to help someone else, you're also getting some free training for yourself and your family with that. All right. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Emergency Management Coordinator at Upstate, Bradley Marmon. Let's talk about um, specifically how to prepare, how should a family prepare for a disaster? Um, and this applies really to homeowners, apartment dwellers, anyone. Um, what are sort of the steps that a person needs to take? You mentioned a go bag. Right. Let's so... So one easy thing to do is, first of all, this is when we talk about planning with your family, this is a really easy conversation to have. It can be over dinner. We can talk about, hey, if a disaster strikes, 
these are the things we're going to do. We're going to have an escape plan. These are the family and friends that we're going to communicate with. Um, maybe there's a meeting place that you have um, outlined in a different geographical area. Or this is something as simple, this is how we're going to communicate. So those are some very easy things to do. Um, the second part of that is what we refer to as a go kit or a go bag. Um, this is a kit that you would want to have in your home for each member of your family that is easily accessible very quickly in a disaster. This is already pre-planned, pre-assembled bag. It can be something as simple as a sports gym bag. It doesn't have to be anything special. In that bag, you're going to want to put things that you would typically need post-disaster. Um, FEMA typically likes to say you should be able to be self-sufficient for 72 hours. And FEMA's Federal Emergency Management. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, correct. And so some items that you can have in the go bag would include um, a light stick. You can buy those at any stores where you crack the light sticks. You can have batteries. A first aid kit is always good to have. You should always have drinking water on hand. Um, this is, you can go to any grocery store and buy the packs of water that you can keep in your basement. That's always a great item to have. Some food, bo food bars. Something that won't spoil. Something that won't spoil, correct. Um, you can also have a flashlight. is always very effective to have. Duct tape is good. I even have one with uh, eye goggles in it, safety goggles, just in oh. case. Um, well, because you're describing, like, if I was going to put a go bag together, I kind of feel like I need to know what I'm going away from to be prepared. I mean, a weather thing might be one situation, but a pandemic or um, some sort of attack, right? You're going to need different things, potentially. Right. You are going to need different things. So we really want individuals to be prepared for what we would call an all-hazards approach. Okay. So think of, number one, what hazards can happen in my community, like we talked about earlier. But also, if we think of something like a pandemic, if we're going to be away from our home or we're in a different place, if we're at an alternate care site, we're going to also need one thing is, that's very important is medications, any medications that we have. Make sure that's uh, readily available to you. That's something that you probably keep readily available to right, you every you day use, right, right. anyway. So you're going to grab that. But also personal hygiene items. What about a toothbrush? Uh, little travel packs of toothpaste. Those are you can go to any grocery store and buy those little things, put them in your, your go bag. Essentially, when you're putting this together, you want to think of all hazards, but also think about, think about it as just a mini vacation away from your home. If I'm going to be away from my home for three or four days, what is going to be important to me? And then on top of that, we have to remember that we're going to need some of our significant identification documents that we spoke of taking But like you of. mentioned, taking pictures, if that's on your cell phone, that's great. But what if uh, we don't have power and your cell phone drains? Um, will we lose potentially communication? During a disaster, it is possible that you could lose communication. So what I would suggest is taking the pictures, putting it, putting those pictures on a Word document, and just printing those Word documents right out. You can fold up those pieces of paper, put it in that plastic bag with your cash that you have on hand right in your go bag. So it's right there for you to use. A copy of a document is always better than having nothing. During a disaster, we're obviously going to be in a different scenario than we're used to. So document records may be viewed differently during sure. that situation. Sure. Um, but in terms of power, if the power's out, because the power, we will lose power sometime this winter. Um, but does that render all electronic devices useless or can you charge them in your car potentially? Or is there a reason you need to go ahead and bring those things with you or leave them behind? I would suggest everyone does bring their electronic device. When the response agencies talk about sheltering now, they do consider charging capabilities for electronic devices because we it is a reality that we do live in a society that is very electronics dependent. Also, as an individual, you can buy little charge packs that are US, USB 
chargers for your electronic devices. You can have one of those on hand. They're very inexpensive, but very powerful pieces of equipment. In addition to that, uh, some individuals will have a generator at their home that they could possibly use. And I would just like to mention one thing with that. If you have a generator, um, make sure it's outside and make sure you're testing it. Oftentimes I, I see people who have generators, but you ask them when the last time they actually turned it on and, and tried it out in their home and they can't tell me a good answer. So it's, it's very easy. You could do something, set it up on a schedule like when you change the batteries in your smoke alarms. You can do all of your emergency preparedness activities at the same time so you don't ever forget. Now, how young um, would you recommend involving kids in, in sort of this preparation? Because um, you don't want to scare them, but you they should be involved, right? They should absolutely be involved. So one segment with the uh, preparedness month this year is youth preparedness. So we want to go ahead and get children involved very early. Speak to them about your plans that you have. Make your child a go kit. You can make that a fun evening activity for a family is putting together a go kit for everyone in the family. It kind of becomes a little bit of a game for children. And also without them realizing it, you're teaching them about emergency preparedness. Talk to the children about who they would contact if they were separated from the family and how to take those steps to be reunited. Also engage the schools. The schools often do a lot with emergency preparedness and teaching children about what to do during a fire at the home. Um, also, so social media posts are very big with schools now. They use that to communicate across a very large audience. So if you have access to social media, make sure you're, you're engaging your schools in that as well. Let's also uh, let listeners know there's a lot of information on the government website, ready.gov. Um, there are many checklists um, for all sorts of disasters that you might not even imagine um, with guidelines for how to prepare, um, what kind of documents to get in order ahead of time, um, and they're easy to print out and just follow through with. Right. The website is fantastic. It provides a lot of resources that families, like you mentioned, can simply print out. It gives you a good starting point. It, every scenario and every family is going to be a little bit different. We all have different needs, and that's okay. But these, is, these documents are going to be a starting point for most families. You can take a look at these documents, like I mentioned, download them, print them off, you can create a nice little folder for your family. Maybe keep it near your go kit. Look at it at least once a year, right? We want to make sure we update our plans. We can go through those checklists. It has checklists for financial preparedness. It talks about how to make a plan. There's even template plans for escape plans and also communication plans for your family. And also included in there is links to websites that will link you to volunteer organizations in your community. That's all right in there. So everything that we've mentioned so far, there's a link or a resource available on ready.gov that is absolutely available to you. It's absolutely free, no cost. This is simply out there to help encourage individuals to be prepared, take that initial step to start emergency planning and we want to engage as many people as possible. Well, this has been a very good reminder. I appreciate you being here to tell us all about this. My guest has been Bradley Marmon, the Emergency Management Coordinator at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the mysterious lung disease linked to vaping.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The cause of an outbreak of vaping-related pulmonary injuries is unknown, with more than 800 cases reported. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there's no evidence that the occurrence of lung disease tied to vaping is declining. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this mystery illness is lung expert Dr. Leslie Coleman. She's a distinguished service professor of surgery specializing in thoracic surgery at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Coleman. Thanks, Amber. I first want to ask you to tell us who's being affected by these lung injuries. Well, there are 805 patients so far as of September 20th, as you stated, and 16 of these people have died of their illness. Two-thirds of them are male, and most of them range between ages 18 to 34, including 125 under age 18. They're generally healthy young people who think they have the flu or a respiratory illness and don't go to seek medical attention for several days after the beginning of symptoms. How do we know that their illness is tied to electronic cigarettes? Well, this is vaping, not necessarily just electronic cigarettes. Vaping in all its multiple formats, including hookahs and homemade devices, uh, black market devices, and so forth. It's a public health association Almost every one of these people has reported vaping in the recent past. They vape a variety of different products, including marijuana-type products or nicotine-only products or both. And some of them are street drugs that have been formulated in amateur laboratories, and we don't really know what's in them. But almost all of these cases, if you repeatedly take a history and the person um, understands how important it is to reveal the truth, will have a vaping history. So let me ask you to describe for us what these pulmonary injuries are. What does this disease look like? The disease clinically looks like a flu. They start with shortness of breath, cough, often chest pain. They can also have headache, fever, nausea, diarrhea, and if it's gone on a little longer, weight loss. And they also have fatigue. So it's a nonspecific group of symptoms. The chest pain, shortness of breath, and cough are the primary symptoms. And when they get to a medical facility, they are, the medical profession has been urged to get CT scans of the chest on these people, and it shows a diffuse lung injury throughout both lungs. We don't know the exact mechanism of injury. So how soon after vaping do these symptoms start occurring? Well, we're not exactly sure, but it's probably days to weeks. And the people don't come in right away when they start with their symptoms. So the exact interval, and we don't know the dose relationship or the interval. Can they get it from vaping once? Probably. Is it more likely to happen if they vape a lot? We don't really know that. So a person shows up at the emergency department and the doctor um, has a CT scan done that shows this diffuse lung injury. What happens after that? Well, there's no specific treatment for this and there's no specific diagnostic test. So it's a diagnosis of presumption. But people age 18 to 34 don't very commonly get an, an injury to their lungs like this. In order to be classified as a vaping-related injury, they have to have a vaping history, and they have to have tests to rule out any kind of bacterial pneumonia or viral pneumonia and any other known 
infectious causes. If those things are all ruled out, plus some other conditions such as allergic conditions and cardiac conditions, then we presume that it is this vaping-related illness. Now, some people have died from this. So yes. what is what makes them die? Well, it's a severe lung injury, so the lungs are having trouble delivering oxygen to the body because they're very damaged. And some of the people in New York, five people so far in New York, have required a breathing tube and a breathing machine to support their lungs. Now, if somebody gets to that point and there's no specific treatment, it's possible for their lungs to deteriorate so much or a secondary infection uh, develop that they can't sustain life because their lungs can't exchange enough oxygen. So it, it's affecting both lungs both lungs. this happens. Um, is it inside the lung or is it in the airway and in, in the vessels it, well, too? Well, it's or out just... in the lung fields, but we don't really know. Wow. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Leslie Coleman about the surge in pulmonary injuries and some deaths that have been tied to vaping. Um, can I have you describe for us sort of the difference between smoking a regular cigarette and vaping? What does that do differently? Well, smoking a cigarette is smoke. Vaping is water vapor with other things dissolved in it. We know that there are 834 toxic things or components in cigarette smoke. We have no idea of all the things that are in vaping, and it depends on what you vape. The Standard electronic cigarettes that, that are produced commercially and are not meddled with afterwards, the main problem with them is they contain a highly addictive substance, nicotine. The marijuana vaping that's obtained in a state like New York, which has medical marijuana in a vaping device, if you use it unaltered from the marijuana dispensary, is probably relatively safe. The things that are bought on the street, things that are obtained through the internet, which is how underage kids get this stuff, the things that have flavors, we don't know the flavor compounds. We know that microwave popcorn Inhalation creates a lung disease in the workers that work with that. So there's probably a popcorn-flavored e-cigarette. There are hundreds of different flavors. And the things that are made in the street, and a lot of these cartridges are refilled. There are certain brand names that have a variety of different formulations. They're not all the same by any means. So the street and homemade and illicit components could contain any number of highly toxic substances. The nicotine is what's addictive, though, right? The nicotine is what's addictive. And the problem with electronic cigarettes is that kids, and that includes the Juul device, the vaping device, kids, three quarters of kids do not believe that they contain nicotine. You can get a, an electronic cigarette without any nicotine, but nobody does because nobody would really bother. The kids think the flavored products are safer than the tobacco flavored ones. They do not understand that they are at risk of severe nicotine addiction. One Juul cartridge is the equivalent of two packs of cigarettes in its nicotine delivery. And nicotine in high doses itself is a toxin. It causes fast heartbeat. It causes stimulation of the adrenal glands. Children, small kids who've gotten a hold of these have had poisoning. And our poison center sees that from time to time. 
So the unawareness that these contain nicotine is tragic because these kids then become addicted to nicotine without ever having smoked an actual cigarette. But didn't vaping, didn't this start sort of, it was marketed electronic cigarettes as a way to help smokers get off of regular cigarettes? Well, that's what they said. It's not been approved by the FDA for that use. The problem is that it's probably slightly more effective than the nicotine substances that you purchase at a drugstore. There are seven different formulations, including an inhaler. It's slightly more effective than that for smokers who use it consistently without any cigarettes for up to a year. However, that's still less than one in four of the smokers who actually quit. And in terms of marketing, the Juul company was just acquired by Altria, which is one of the <clears throat> large tobacco manufacturers. And the Juul company CEO resigned a few days ago, and they've put in a new CEO. And they put out a letter to their investors and stockholders, which says, don't worry, the shakeup about Juul will not affect the profits of this corporation. And we believe that all the commotion about vaping will actually increase cigarette purchases. Interesting. Now, if you want to talk about cynicism, there you have it. Very clearly that these companies are not focused on anything but selling nicotine products and getting kids and addicted. Is there such a thing as safe vaping? Are there, is there any way to do it safely? There's not any way to do it without any risk because we do not know the complete risk profile. None of these products have been declared risk-free. We know that cigarettes are still for sale and have extremely high risk. So risk assessment is not very useful as a way of determining these things. Removing the flavors, and in New York now we don't have the sale of flavored tobacco and um, tobacco and nicotine products, does reduce the appeal to young people. But that wasn't done to in response to the lung injuries. That was separate. Right? Well, yeah, we don't. It happened about the same time in New York State, and the FDA also is probably going to announce this soon. Uh, our problem in New York State is that they did not include menthol in the ban on flavors, and menthol is probably the most utilized flavoring, especially by cigarette smokers and cigarette X smokers. And that needs to be included in every flavor ban. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Leslie Coleman. She's a distinguished service professor of surgery, specializing in thoracic surgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Julianne Jochum from New York City sent us a short story that reminds us how we are all connected. I will read just an excerpt from her story called Beautiful Hands, Beautiful Feet. The narrator is working at a nail salon. As a new client approaches her station, she is told by her co-worker that the client recently lost her daughter to kidney disease, even after she had given her daughter one of her kidneys. I am wishing that I did not know what I know about her, this private, cavernous thing. I get to work, bathe her feet, clean up her nails, clip and file them. She doesn't read anything or chat or close her eyes. She just sits, gripping the arms of the chair, 
staring straight ahead. I think, what is in her mind right now? Her daughter, I guess. Not that you can tell from her fixed face. You can't tell from her feet either. They don't look like feet in mourning. I think, does she miss her kidney? Then, no, she's probably glad it is with her daughter, even dead. Then, if she bears what is unbearable, does that mean it is bearable? I dab exfoliant on her feet and chins and begin to scrub. It occurs to me that I have never been this physically close to grief before. Then it occurs to me that I probably have. She is missing a kidney and missing a daughter, and there's no sign. Then I think, how many times have I laid nail polish over pain without knowing it? Inside, how many people in this room is pain flickering right now? Where is the end of it? I turn the timer to start the 10-minute massage that all pedicure clients get. Finally, the lady's eyes close and her grip on the chair loosens. Katie looks over and smiles at me. The lady's eyelashes flutter a little during the massage. She looks like a child dreaming. When the timer starts clicking to let you know there's one minute left, Katie looks me a question, and I nod. Melanie, the owner, is far away by the door. Swiftly, Katie sets the timer between us back to 10. That is how we give the lady an extra 10 minutes for free. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers shares his views on fitness and motivation, and we take a look at the importance of strength training. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <music>